0: Hello and good morning, evening or afternoon, depending on when you are listening to this latest Susty Talk audio interview from Edie. And this time we have a special to mark the Biodiversity COP15, which is taking place at the moment um, in Montreal. And calling me not from Canada uh, for carbon reasons is Stephen Hall from Ashton. He is their head of awards and he was at COP um, last month um and keen to like reflect on that and look ahead to the biodiversity cop. So Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thank you. And just straight off the bat, it was some of our team that were at COP, it wasn't me this year because I'm new to Ashton. But yeah, Ashton had a, a strong presence at COP27.
0: We can we can recap on that um very shortly, but um I know that myself and my team are very familiar um with Ashton but for those who are listening who might not have heard of Ashton would you mind briefly introducing them and also we can talk a little bit about what you do there as head of awards.
1: Brilliant yeah thank you so Ashton is Ashton Climate Solutions we are an award-making charity that's been running now for 20 years plus and the reason why we do awards is because they have a, a great impact on elevating the best sustainability solutions in the world. So we have a series of themes predominantly around energy access and natural climate solutions. And in the UK, we have similar work as well. But our main, our main point is that we're a solutions charity. We're not there necessarily to kind of narrate all of the different malefactors in the system. We are there to discover, amplify, connect and scale the best climate solutions in the world. And that's what we've been doing for some time.
0: Great, thank you. It was good to see at COP27 that there was actually a Solutions Day to inject that bit of uh, positivity at the end, I think. Um, So I did want to start by reflecting on COP27, sort of going into it. A lot of people said we think nature will be quite high on the agenda, similar to last year, especially given that we've got this COP15 meeting in December um so do you think that reflecting on it that nature was high enough on on the agenda and when i say agenda obviously there's sort of two cops aren't there there's the official negotiation mm-hmm. part and then all the noise around it
1: yeah so it's definitely higher up the agenda and there's definitely more noise so i don't think that anybody would say oh yeah we everything was solved for nature and we uh, had a, a fantastic cop 27 for nature but it well, it is true that there are some real highlights. So delinking deforestation from finance is a really important part of what was being discussed at COP and that included commitments <clears throat> from international finance to remove deforestation from commodity chains. And that really does filter down into the types of decisions businesses are making because people who are providing debt and equity finance are going to be asking much more um serious questions about supply chains not only from a carbon perspective but from a biodiversity perspective that we'll get onto. but certainly forest products are going to become much more closely tracked are going to be paid much more attention to when it comes to esg requirements and that was a good result from cop 27 certainly the political commitments have really helped by Brazil's new president elect on protecting existing forests so some of us breathed a sigh of relief when that um those results came in and that really did resonate at cop when brazil was able to say look well, you know we are really going to lead the way on protecting rainforests and that brings others along with them because if you look at the size of um countries forest resource brazil really is up there so when they move others feel uh, motivated and able to move as well so that was that was a huge bonus and I might return to this once or twice in our interview protecting existing old growth and tropical forests is much better than planting new ones uh, because they're already providing all of their ecosystem services if you like to speak in that language or we're already kind of at peak uh, biological productivity for biodiversity and so it doesn't matter which way you look at it keeping what we have and nature has provided is a lot better than us trying to like replicate it again so they they were two huge moves The also the first ocean pavilion was in the blue zone the blue zone being what you referred to as the noise around the negotiations but also where a lot of the The themes of COP get properly thrashed out, and a lot of the learning is done, and uh, new connections are made. So, having an oceans pavilion is really important, not only for blue carbon, not only for ocean based carbon, but also thinking about how that links to protecting the ecosystems in oceans, as well as the things that we want oceans to do, which is sequester carbon. So, that was great, and there was much more. There were many more natural climate solutions there. So there was a lot more noise and a lot of progress. If you get down into the nitty gritty, which we are invited to do, so Article 6, um, lots of discussion around Article 6, which is how countries basically trade emissions in, and, and contributions through land use, land use change, and forestry. So it's a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. But it is new, so much like any UETS is almost completely unintelligible to uh, people who are not into emissions trading. Then the similar is going to be true for Article Six for some time to come. But as expertise develops and we start to do things faster, the ways in which we comply with Article Six will become much clearer, and the trades will become the transaction costs of the trades will become lower. Article six point four um, is about verifying emissions removals. So knowing that you are getting what you pay for or knowing that you are getting what you have asked for in terms of removing emissions from the air to nature-based sources, either soils or forests or uh, whatever is verified, is really, really important. And you have to get into the techie detail. And there was some substantial progress made there as well. So those things are huge positives. But the kind of The negatives that came out of it are going to be some of the same as our policy asks for um, COP15, which is the voice of Indigenous and local communities are still not being heard. The solutions that they provide are not being elevated and the finance that is supposed to actually fix this problem is still not reaching them. So those three things we really need to make progress on in coming COPs but also in COP15 if that is to be properly realised then that's a huge that's a huge step forward not only because it's the ethically the right thing to do to make sure that the people that live in these places are part of the decision-making process in how to protect those ecosystems but also because that's what works and that's one of the things I want to speak about is some of the awards that Ashton's made over the past years to recognize the role of nature-based solutions in climate action so the voice of indigenous people and local communities is really high on our agenda so lots of progress was made at cop 27 more could have been done and the fact that cop 15 was following closely after the biodiversity cop is it did focus minds and it focused attention but as always with these negotiations the devil's going to be in the detail
0: Mm-hmm. Of course, there's so much we could unpick there. I could do a whole one of these just on carbon markets, which I had to do a feature on recently, and that is a beast. We will onto, talk a bit about that as well. We will talk onto, about it. onto itself, to be honest. Um, and you mentioned there that hearts and minds have been focused, but equally, there's concern that it's a global treaty, obviously, but there needs to be local leadership and implementation. We will see concerns that maybe some countries aren't um, getting their own houses in order or sending their own world leaders there, and and here in the UK. Yeah, the government didn't publish its environment bill targets to time ahead of the conference. It's set out today its negotiating um, position, but there probably are some bits missing. So, is Ashton concerned at the moment that UK policymaking on biodiversity doesn't meet the requirements of your key messages that you've just mentioned there, Steve?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to recognise that what we are dealing with, with in our environment bill is not is not always running to time with COP15. So in December 2023, most of our European uh, legal commitments run out and there's real concern across environmental groups and campaigns and legal, that some of these protections that we have, which are manifold, there are hundreds and hundreds of them, will fall away if they're not um, properly incorporated into the bill. So it's probably not right to rush the development of that um to the to the timescales of international conferences which are happening each year. So we've there's a fairly good appreciation of what needs to be done in the UK environment bill and the time taken to do it properly is is probably worth taking. At the same time, it is true that agencies in the UK like the Environment Agency for example and um, do not have the teeth they need or the resources that they need to properly enforce the legislation that's already in place so it's very difficult to see how policy making and regulation alone however right it's got in environment bills etc however right the subsidy regime is for agriculture for example if it doesn't have the correct enforcement and that the agencies that are there to regulate and enforce those laws are not properly resourced and that that's really high in The priorities across the environment sector I would say. So getting it right is better than getting it done quickly but time is running out and there is a sort of bit of a cliff in December 2023 as to whether or not we're going to retain some of those environmental protections.
0: No, that makes sense and we saw that from the Office for Environmental Protection actually said yeah please do take some more um, time with this but equally I know that some people were saying the UK could have brought more to the stage for COP15 and I wanted to talk about something that we've seen this year which seems to be we work predominantly with businesses and we've seen it seems like an uptick in businesses putting the pressure on yeah the UK government and the international policy making community on biodiversity um, more this year so I wanted to get your feeling on whether that's something um, you've seen and and how Ashton would encourage businesses to to get involved in in biodiversity action.
1: Yeah, so it's the uptick on carbon has really helped. So the um, Task Force on Climate Disclosures and all of the different expertise that's now been poured into understanding carbon across supply chains has really helped businesses increase their understanding of what it means to take climate action. And alongside our understanding of the nature's role in carbon mitigation and sequestrations and removals is developing a pace such that businesses too are now asking okay well what can we do how can we present our supply chain as not only climate compatible but biodiversity compatible as well and it's fair to say that the ability to do that in kind of monitored and managed and verified ways is lagging behind carbon so that's something that does need to improve and there is a specificity element to it as well because different businesses have got different supply chains and we're not talking about one like reducible number of tons of co2 emitted we're talking about diversity of species we're talking about functioning of ecosystems we're talking about um not just carbon cycles but nutrient cycles as well so it is true that it's probably not going to be the same thing that you can do for carbon which is essentially replace the accounting mindset and just do it for a different metric i think it's a little bit more complicated to do for biodiversity but nevertheless important it's just how can you make that show up in a triple bottom line in a way that carbon is reducible to one number and ecosystems and biodiversity isn't and that's a real challenge for business going forward
0: that makes sense. And then in terms of business action, I'm looking at Ashton's key messages to policymakers, and I think some of them will probably be the same for businesses. So we've got making sure that the targets are um, achievable, but ambitious and that they are numerical and time bound. So not just we'll improve something, but we'll, we'll protect 30 percent of land and sea. Yeah. Um. And then you also mentioned as well earlier, you mentioned things like the importance of making sure this is science based, but also just honouring human rights as as well so I'm presuming that some of those asks are for business as much as for for policy and negotiators.
1: Yeah so I I hesitate to say it's it's easier for business because it's not it's still a challenge but if you are working in a decent sized organisation you have a fairly good idea of where your the raw materials in your supply chain and what that means what learn that's taking on nature. And that's where we've seen some companies, I'm not going to name any names to elevate any any massive ones, but taking an interest in the supply chain, the the geographical supply chain, not just the raw materials, like where are we getting these raw materials from and who are the communities that are involved in them. I can think of several doing transnational, um, shall we say, biomass trades who have paid attention to that supply chain in such a way that they've worked properly with the communities involved. Our call would be to do that for in every business and in every policy is to recognise that wherever a substantial amount of raw materials is coming from, that you can work with local people to figure out what the ecosystem impacts are, because it's very easy to mask them behind a sort of generalised standard. But it's harder if you say, well, we get 50% of our timber from Indonesia and what does that mean for us like what does that mean in gross tonnage and what does that mean in terms of what standards are applied to those forests in those places and can we verify that those communities are involved in them or is it just one company that's bought that land out and no longer uh, ensures rights of access to those you know to those areas so that's that's important to us and that's a good time i think for me to talk about some of the reasons why we do awards and sort of move away from the generic and into the specific. So this year in 2022, we awarded seven Ashton Awards, five of which um, came from internationals and three or four of which were intrinsically linked with nature and one of our, sorry, two of our awards are funded by um, Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy And that's energising agriculture and natural climate solutions. So both of those are intrinsically linked with nature. One is about food supply chains and one is about natural climate solutions in the sort of tropical forest belt. And our winners of those two awards were Soka Fresh for energising agriculture. So the two awards that we had internationally that are related to natural climate solutions and energising agriculture were funded by the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And one of those awards was won by Soco Fresh, which is a company looking at chilling agricultural supply chains. So 40% of harvest can be lost by farmers simply because they don't have access to a cold chain. So if you have access to a cold chain whereby you can bulk up harvests and get them to market, then you are losing a lot less produce. You need you've got a much more efficient way of contributing to global food flu- food supply. And SoCoFresh do that using solar chillers. So by finding a company that is linking clean energy with reducing agricultural losses, there's a real synergy there. And that's why we were really excited about SoCoFresh and really want to continue to elevate them over the next 12 months. And in Indonesia, we awarded ASRI for natural climate solutions. And ASRI, uh, their predominant mission is to stop illegal logging. So stop illegal logging is the headline goal, but the way they went about it was absolutely fantastic. So instead of going in and saying, we need to stop you doing illegal logging, that's illegal, please don't do that. Instead, they went and listened or or did what um, they call radical listening. So they go into a community and listen to the reasons why um, illegal logging is a problem. And they focus on the jobs and skills and livelihoods of the people involved and then look at the leverage points as to okay well if we want to if we want to move the needle on illegal logging then how far down the chain do we need to go and what people were asking for was healthcare and education first so that's what as we provided healthcare and education first spoke to women in communities spoke to uh, community leaders and said how can we develop something that's meaningful for you and then once those relationships of trust were built up then they were able to do things about illegal logging And again, they they listened very carefully to what those communities needed. And one of the things was, well, we've invested a lot in our chainsaws. These chainsaws are expensive as part of our kind of monthly annual income. We can't just cast them to one side and start doing something different. So they do a chainsaw exchange, like a pawn shop for chainsaws, if you like, which means that when you offer a new um, livelihood for people who were previously doing illegal logging, you take the chainsaw in and then start provisioning them with the things they need to restore uh, the forests around them. So not only have they managed to reverse illegal logging in the places that they operate, they have increased forest regeneration and they've also increased the opportunities, jobs, skills and livelihoods of the communities involved. That's why that was such a great solution and we wanted to celebrate that and make a big song and dance about ASRI, is because that's a real solution to all of the problems that happen, well, not all of them, but like a a decent basket of the problems that people are facing in those places, without just coming in and saying, we need to protect so many million hectares, so we're going to draw a big line around it and then police that area, like that's, Mm. that's one way of doing it, but A much more sensitive and long term effective way of doing that is to build sustainable livelihoods in regenerating those ecosystems which are under threat.
0: That makes sense. That makes complete sense. And I guess I'm listening to this and these are great solutions and I know they're coming from perhaps smaller um, innovators. So I guess I'd like to wrap up by asking what are bigger businesses doing to support people innovating like the projects you mentioned and what can they do if they're not already involved in that?
1: Well, I mean it's obviously supporting Ashton would be the first thing that you would do and then the second thing that you would do is you would look at the types of winners that we're elevating, the types of solutions that we're able to discover and think about how you can either support them directly, how you can lobby COP15, how you can get involved in policy such that those Indigenous livelihoods and local communities are understood fully in the work that you do and the policies that you're advocating for. And then finally, continue to look down the supply chain and really question yourself. Is this standard sufficient? Is this whatever standard that we're signing up to? Because it's difficult to put your finger on one because some might be forest products, some might be ocean products, some you know, might be uh, just global commodities, palm oil, if you like whichever standard you are signing up to, is it meaningful for you? Is it sufficient just to perform to this standard or can you do more by understanding your supply chain and the communities that make it up essentially? And that there are three things that business, all businesses can do to a different degree depending on their size, but our message would be always to look deeper, really understand, Who is developing these, who's bringing these commodities to market for you? And then how can you understand that in terms of global biodiversity loss? Because there's not one giant global biodiversity loss machine that's just hoovering through ecosystems. It's millions of different supply chains and millions of different businesses. And it's beholden upon everybody to look down their own supply chain and question whether or not we can do better.
0: Got it. Um, Steve, I know we're running out of time for the call, but I know that as Ashton, so solution focused, I thought it was important to end with some actions that people could take away um, from this. So thank you very much for those and thank you for your time. um. And I have my fingers crossed for a productive COP with a strong outcome for, for everyone involved. So thank you That's very true. much. Thank you very much for your COP15 insights today.